And Lord, we give you this message now. I pray that in these next 30, 40, 45 minutes, that in this room you would take out hearts of stone and that you would give hearts of flesh. That you would write your law, your gospel, your word on hearts this morning. And that in this room, men and women would, for the first time, see you, own up to you, trust you, love you, receive all that Jesus is. And strengthen all of us through this word, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Good. In Ephesians chapter 6, don't need to turn there, but I'll just mention this. Paul, Paul says that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've come to that place where you're, you've given your life to Jesus Christ and you're walking in faith, trusting him, then you are in a war, a battle, against supernatural beings whose aim is to destroy your trust in Jesus. The moment you start following Jesus, boom, war begins. And God hasn't left us defenseless in this war. He's given us a massive sword, what he calls the sword of the spirit. It's the word of God. It's what God's given to us. Now this sword, the word of God, has two parts. If you've read your Bible, the first three quarters of your Bible is the Old Testament describing God's work before Jesus came in the nation of Israel through the Old Covenant. Three quarters of your Bible, Old Testament. And then the last quarter of your Bible is the New Testament. Describes God coming to earth in the person of Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection, the advance of the New Covenant to all the nations. So that's the whole Bible that God has given to us, the, the whole sword of the Spirit which God has given to us to wield and to use against discouragements when they come, uh, deceptions when they arise, uh, temptations when they start to overpower us. We're at war against demonic supernatural beings that are seeking to destroy our faith and we have the most awesome weapon imaginable in the scriptures. Now, There's a problem, though, and that is that a lot of followers of Jesus don't really get the Old Testament. They they don't get Genesis through Malachi. There's followers of Jesus I've talked to, and they think that the Old Testament is just a bunch of commands that have no relevance for us today. There's other followers of Jesus who think that, well, the Old Testament, it kind of demanded that you be perfect in order for you to be able to be accepted by God. Um... Some people think that it describes a different way to be saved than the New Testament. And so people have misunderstandings about the Old Testament. And if that's you, you're not going to want to be, you're not going to be confident enough to use the Old Testament. You're not going to see how you could use the Old Testament as part of the sword of the Spirit. So you're going to be going into battle with a quarter of a sword. And that's not a pretty picture. That's, that's dangerous to head into battle like this with a quarter of the sword. And so, One of our passions here at Mercy Hill, and especially what I want to focus on this morning, is that we would all be equipped to be able to use the whole sword of the Spirit, Old Testament and New Testament, to fight the fight of faith. And so what I want to talk about this morning and kind of have us wrestle with is what's the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? How are they different? And maybe more importantly, how are they the same? 
And to start us off with that, let's turn to Exodus chapter 20. And I'd like you all to be able to have a Bible you can look on a lot of different passages. So raise your hand if you don't have one. We'll bring one to you. This is really important. Exodus 20, Old Testament, way back to the left. It's on page 61 in the Bibles that we're passing out. Exodus 20 is is a really important passage in the scripture. This is where God gives Israel the law. Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, God gives Israel the law and establishes the old covenant. And so here's the question I want us to think about as we look at Exodus 20. What was it that the Old Testament law called Israel to do? How would you summarize the Old Testament law? What is God calling Israel to do in the law. A lot of people think that the law is just a lot of commands, but here, Exodus 20, where God gives the law, the very first statement is not a command. Look at what the first statement is. Verse 2. This is the law right here. Verse 2, Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So the law starts with God describing himself. God wants Israel to remember what God has just done. Remember, a few weeks ago, the the Exodus, where God delivered Israel out of Egypt with mighty signs and wonders, parted the Red Sea, delivered them from slavery, and God wants Israel to think back on what they have experienced firsthand of who God is. So I just thought, okay, what are some of the things that Israel would have thought of when they said, I am God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What are some of the things that Israel saw about God in that experience? There's a bunch of them. I just thought of five that I want to mention. First of all, they saw that God is a God who loves and cares. God loves us. We like to say here at Mercy Hill, or at least I like to say, that God loves and delights to do over-the-top good for completely undeserving people. God's heart is so full of joy in the fellowship of the Trinity that it's just overflowing with goodness. God loves you. You've got to understand that. This is one of the most important things you need to get in your heart and mind about God. He loves. And so here's Israel, slaves in Egypt. They cry out to God. God, creator God, massive God, looks down, little Israel hears them loves them, frees them. So they would have seen clearly, God loves. Is that what you think of when you think of God? That he cares about you, that he loves you. Israel saw that. Secondly, they saw that God forgives. Remember the Passover. Part of the freedom from Egypt was the Passover, which would have shown Israel a couple things. One is, We deserved punishment just like Egypt did. Because remember, if Israel wouldn't have had the lamb's blood on the doorposts, they would have had their firstborn sons killed as well. And so Israel would have thought, okay, God, God is a just God. We've all sinned against God. We deserve punishment from God. But God has made a way for us to be forgiven through the lamb's blood on the doorposts, which pictures what? Jesus in the future, what Jesus would do on the cross. So Israel would have understood God forgives God forgives sin time and time and time again. Third, they would have seen that God guides. Think of all the ways that God guided them. He told them, uh, 
kill a lamb, put the blood on the doorposts. He told them, head out of Egypt. He said, head towards the Red Sea. They followed God sometimes with commands that didn't make any sense to them. Blood on a doorpost, what's that about? But aren't, aren't they glad they did it after that night happened? And so they saw God's flawless guidance, directions, commands. So God loves, God forgives, forgives God guides. And third, they saw that God provides. I mean, just think of how incredibly, lavishly God provided for Israel. Massive signs and wonders that he worked so that they could be freed. And then parting the Red Sea so that they could go across on dry land. And then providing them fresh manna every morning and fresh quail barbecue at night and having water come out of rocks. Everything had been provided for them. There was not one need that Israel had through this whole process that God didn't meet, 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 meet. God provides. And then lastly, they would have seen that God satisfies. So remember, we're unpacking verse 2. This is the beginning of the law. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What does he want them to think of? Love, forgiveness, guidance, provision, and then heart satisfaction. Remember, God had said, The purpose for his delivering Israel from Egypt was to make himself known more clearly to Israel. So they could see, whoa, that's who you are. And not just so that they could see, but so that as they know personally this God who's just revealed himself to them, as they bow, as they worship, their hearts would be fully satisfied. They, you, me, We're all wired to have our highest satisfaction in beholding, worshiping, knowing God. They would have experienced that as they beheld God as he was revealed through the Exodus. So here's the beginning of the law. God starts off by saying, I've loved you. I have forgiven you. I have guided you. I have provided for you. I've completely satisfied you with my presence. Therefore... Verse 3, the first command, most important command of the law. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, what does that mean? Simply this, God's saying, don't rely on anything else to do what only I can do. You've seen who I am. Only I, only God can perfectly love. Forgive, guide, provide, satisfy. So rely on me alone. Now verses 2 and 3, summary of the whole law right there. Now now think of the power of how these two verses go together. Verse 2 is the reason for verse 3. And think of why this is so important. Israel, and every single one of us here this morning, you need these five things desperately. I do, and you do. You need love. You need forgiveness. You need guidance. You need provision. You need heart satisfaction. You need these things. And God has said to Israel and to us, you've seen my unmatched, my unrivaled love, forgiveness, guidance, provision, and satisfaction. So therefore, verse 3 For the rest of your life, Israel, rely on me. Rely on me to love you, 
For the rest of your life, rely on me to forgive you. Rely on me to guide you, to provide for you, to satisfy you. For the rest of your life, if you'll rely on me alone, don't rely on anything else. Nothing else can do this for you. I'm God. I've created the universe. You've seen my power. You've seen my love, my faithfulness. Only I can love you, forgive you, guide you, provide for you, satisfy you. Rely on me alone. If you do, for the rest of your life, I'll be this to you. That's the law. Do you feel that? Now you might think, well, what about the rest of the commands? Okay, there's ten commands here, but all the rest of the commands are simply showing what will happen as you rely on God. For example, if you're relying on God to provide for you, would you steal? No, you wouldn't. That's verse 15. Don't steal. If you rely on God to get you out of tough situations... Would you try to take matters into your own hands and lie to get out of it? No, you wouldn't. You'd rely on God. God, come and do it. I don't need to lie. You're going to take care of me. That's verse 16. If you rely on God to satisfy your heart with his presence, known through Jesus, especially now, would you covet? You wouldn't covet. You know when you've tasted God's heart fullness in your life, you are satisfied to overflowing. Aren't you? So see, all the rest of the commands, the the whole Ten Commands and all the rest of the commands in the law are just the outflow that comes from relying on God. So don't think that the law is like some kind of harsh, burdensome system. Not at all. I mean, David, how did David describe the law? Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Now, he's not going to say that if it's like a thousand harsh, burdensome commands. He's not a masochist. He loves pleasure. He loves God's word because I love reading about how I can rely on God to love me, to forgive me, yes, to provide for me, awesome, to satisfy me, yes, to guide me. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it whenever I have a chance to. It's not a harsh, legalistic system. The law never said to try to earn your standing before God by works. No, the law said no one can earn standing before God by works. Don't even try. God hates that because you can't. It's wrong. It's all mercy. You only are justified by faith alone, just like Abraham was, Genesis 15, 6. God doesn't say you've got to be perfect in the law in order to be accepted by him. He gave animal sacrifices for forgiveness. People need forgiveness. We're imperfect people. We need forgiveness. So don't have the wrong view of the law. It's God standing before you saying, rely on me to love you, to forgive you, to provide for you, to guide you, to satisfy you. If you'll rely on me, God. Does that make sense? Look at who he's been. He's displayed himself to Israel. If you'll rely on me, I will love you and do all these things for you for the rest of your life into eternity. I promise. That's good news, isn't it? Are you feeling burdened? Are you feeling oppressed? It's like, no, this is awesome. So now think of how Israel would have felt at this point. Just put yourself in Israel's shoes a little bit. They know they need love, forgiveness, guidance, provision, heart satisfaction. They've just seen God give an amazing display of each of those things through delivering them from Egypt And now God has stood before them in the law and he said, 
Look at what I've done for you. Trust me. Rely on me. Rely on me to love, forgive, provide, satisfy, and uh, what did I leave out? One of them. Trust me to provide all these things for you, and I will do it for the rest of your life. This is the best news in the world. So why then is that the old covenant and why then did there need to be a new covenant? This one sounds pretty good. Why the need for a new covenant? It's because of how Israel responded, which is also how we respond. To see this, look at Exodus chapter 32. It's, it's shocking how Israel responds to this. How did Israel respond? Moses just gave Israel the law. Look at who God is, Israel. This is what God says. Look at what I've done. Rely on me to do all these things for you for the rest of your life. I promise, I commit to you, I will do all these things. I'll forgive you. I'll love you, provide for you, guide you, satisfy you. Exodus 32, page 72 in the Bibles we just passed out. Here's how Israel responded. Verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So they made for themselves a golden calf and turned their backs on God and bowed down to this golden calf and worshipped it. I mean, just feel this. With their own eyes, they had seen, they had first-hand experience of God in his love and forgiveness and provision and satisfaction and guidance. They had seen God perfectly fulfilling all of those flawlessly perfection of his love and forgiveness and goodness. And they all turned their backs on God and and walked away and they made themselves this little golden calf. You can kind of see it there, okay? And they worshipped this. And the tragic thing is that this wasn't one, just one instance in Israel's history. In all of Israel's history, all of their history, the vast majority of Israel did this again and again and again and again. God revealed himself to them again and again and again and they turned their backs on God again and again and again and again. Let me give you one passage to see this. Look at Nehemiah 9, 23 through 29. Nehemiah, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms. Right about middle to the left of your Old Testament of the Bible there. It's just page 405 in the Bibles we just passed out, okay? Page 405. Now the question we're asking is, that first covenant sounds pretty good. Forgiveness, love, provision, guidance. Why does there need to be a second covenant? That's the question we're asking. Why does there need to be a new covenant? And look at the history of Israel in Nehemiah 9, 23 through 29. The elder says, really, I want you to be able to see this in your Bibles yourself. This is a, this is a heartbreaking passage. This is a prayer to God. You, verse 23, God, 
multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. God gave them kids, 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 kids. And you brought them into the lands that you had told their fathers to enter and possess, the land flowing with milk and honey. Again, God loves, God's good, he forgives, he's, he's blessing them. Verse 24, so the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. The Canaanites were a godless, horribly sinful people. And it was time for God just to judge them. So he used Israel to do that. And gave the Canaanites into their Israel's hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, the Canaanites, that they might do with them as they would. God told them to destroy the Canaanites. Israel did that. Verse 25, they, Israel, captured fortified cities in a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. This is Israel. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. (laughs) What's the next verse going to say? Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who'd warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. There's passages in the Old Testament which describe how Israel turned from God and followed idols who made them burn their babies alive. (laughs) We're going to come back to the question of why would they turn from God to that? Why? It's the same reason I've sinned this last week and you've sinned this last week too, but we'll get there. Verse 27, Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, God, and you heard them from heaven and according to your great mercies, You gave them saviors. These are the judges, the book of Judges, who saved them from the hand of their enemies. Again, great mercy. They call upon God. Okay, we're sorry. We're back. We're back. God delivers them. So now what do they do? They've just been delivered again from God, by God, from these terrible oppressions. Verse 28. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them, Israel. Yet when they turned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Now they finally got it, right? Okay, okay, we get it. We're going to stick with you. You're amazing. Not so. He is amazing. It's not what Israel did. Verse 29, you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he'll live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. That's Israel's history. All of Israel's history, the vast majority of Israel were godless the vast majority of Israel were godless. And, and because of that, and that's a puzzling thing, isn't it? I mean, you could think that 
I mean, God's plan has like totally derailed here, right? Isn't that what you'd think? Last week we saw God had chosen Israel to be his people, right? And he placed them, Ezekiel 5, 5, in the center of the nations so that the nations could see Israel and learn crucial spiritual truths from watching what happens in Israel. What are the nations seeing? Israel's sin, God's mercy, Israel's sin, God's mercy, Israel's sin, Israel's sin, God's judgment, they call upon God, God's mercy, Israel's sin, God's judgment, they call upon God, God's mercy, over and over and over and over again. You could think, though, that God's plan is derailed here, but that's not what the scriptures say. Uh, Romans 5 and Romans 7 teach that God has purposefully allowed Israel to just be what they are, sinful, so that the nations, including us, could learn from Israel and their sinfulness about us and our sinfulness. We are Israel. We've responded the same way. Now, let me just warn you. This isn't pretty. Okay? And, and if you've thought that what the Bible is all about is making us feel good about ourselves... This is going to be um, a shock to you. Because the Bible, it is about us feeling good, not about ourselves, but about God as he's revealed in Jesus. You want to feel good? Take your eyes off of yourself and look at God as he's revealed in Jesus. And the more clearly we see our sinfulness in the equation, the more blazing will be our vision of God and his mercy through Christ. So it's a good thing to receive what the Bible says about us. And the answer the Bible gives is not pretty. It's devastating. And I want you to see it and feel it because the more you see it and feel it, the more joy and fullness and delight and freedom you'll have in beholding who God is. So the question is, why did Israel respond this way? Why would Israel turn from God as he has revealed himself to them clearly in the Exodus and time and time again through their history? They knew clearly who God was. See, we try to think of a good reason why they would. We think, well, maybe they just didn't know enough. Maybe they really wanted to follow God, but God just was kind of obscure. No. It'd be nice if it was the way. It's not that way. God was crystal clear to them. He's been crystal clear to us in Israel's history, in the cross, in creation, in the fact that you have hands that work that God gave you, eyes that can see. God is awesome. We have evidence overflowing what we need. And we've all turned away from God. So, so why did Israel turn away from God? It's because they wanted to. They didn't want God. They wanted to turn away from God. It's not like they they wanted God. They, They weren't disciplined enough. They didn't want God. They turned from God in his love and forgiveness and provision and guidance and heart satisfaction because they didn't want him. They wanted something else more. What did they want more than God? They wanted to try to be 
self-sufficient. They wanted to try to be independent. They wanted to try to be in control. Now, if you're honest, don't you see that that's the truth about your heart as well? The reason Israel turned from God was because the one thing God called them to that they did not want, God called them to bend the knee and to say, I'm needy, I'm insufficient, I need you. And they didn't want to do that. It's, don't we all like to come across cool? I mean, what is cool? Cool is sufficient, independent, and in control. Right? We dress so we look, I don't know how you do that, but like, cool, you try to look, right? I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. That's what's inside us. And listen, the reason that's so wicked is because we're not. You are a created being. He is creator, you are created, okay? Lesson number one, God's creator, you're created. Created beings depend. Created beings need. Created beings aren't in control. But we, in our pride, we want to be self-sufficient, independent, in control. We do not want to bend the knee. We want to be cool. That's why Israel turned, and that's why we turned as well. And so God has put Israel in the center of the nations so that the nations and we can watch Israel as they turn away from God time and time and time and time again so there will be no mistake. We'll say, that's lunacy that they would do that. There's no good reason for that. That's wicked. And God says, yes. And that's me. And that's you. That's the reality of our hearts. So, so then here's the question. Israel doesn't want God. We don't want you. If God reveals himself to them again, will that change anything? No, because we don't want you. What can God possibly do for people who just keep saying, we don't want you. We don't want you. We want to be you. We want you to go down and us to go up. Right? That's what they're saying. So how can God possibly save people who don't want God? That's the question. What can God do? If he goes to them a hundred times more and reveals himself again, will that change anything? Well, no, they don't want God. So how can God save people? That's the question. So do you feel the problem? This is why there needs to be a new covenant. Because of Israel's heart, because of my heart, and your heart. So to see what the new covenant is and how we can be saved, look at Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, kind of in the middle of your Bibles. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. This is page 724 in the Bibles we just passed out. How can anyone be saved? So, so get the picture. All through Israel's history, the vast majority of Israel had turned their backs on God again and again and again. There were some exceptions. We'll talk about them in a moment. Abraham, Hannah, the 7,000 who didn't bend their knee towards Baal. But of the, of the million people in Israel, the vast majority always turned their backs on God. And here God makes an amazing promise to Israel. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is a, a figure of speech. 
and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I'm I'm just going to wash you clean from all your uncleannesses. I'm just going to cleanse you from all your idols. I'm going to do it. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone, that hard heart. We don't want you. I'm going to remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I guess this is probably a controversial passage, but I I don't see the controversy here, just to be honest. I think it's pretty clear what's going on. Here's what God is saying, okay? Here's Israel. All right? We don't want you. Okay? We don't want God. I don't want God. I don't want God. I see, I see you. I don't want you. I see you again. I still don't want you. I don't want you. I don't want you. I don't want you. I don't want you. And while I'm saying, I don't want you, what does God do? I don't want you. I don't want you. I don't want... Oh, you are awesome. (laughs) Yes. Would you love me? Look at how I was. Would you forgive me? What was I thinking? That's what God says he does. That's the new covenant. Now, the words new covenant aren't here, but they are in Jeremiah 31. Turn there. This is why there had to be a new covenant. The covenants, the the new and old covenant isn't so much a difference of content as it's God's changing hearts to receive the contents. Look at Jeremiah 31, the new covenant God promises Israel. I should mention the new covenant is not just for Israel, though. You're thinking, okay, Israel, 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 what about us? A couple Jewish people here by by, by, uh, nationality or by birth, but... What about the rest of us Gentiles? In Hebrews 8, the author of Hebrews quotes this passage, Jeremiah 31, and says this is true for all Gentiles as well. And Jesus, remember what Jesus said? He's celebrating the Passover. He holds up the cup. Remember? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. His death on the cross is what purchased the gift of a new heart for those he would save. Mm. Read Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. If you're trusting and loving Jesus now, this is what you've experienced. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. New covenant. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant, the new covenant, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And when he writes it on our hearts, our hearts change and respond and love. Relying on you? Yes, I'll do it. Rely on God. Yes, I want to rely on you. He writes it on our hearts. And no, I'm sorry, and I will be their God. 
They won't be turning to other gods. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Not Baal's people, my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So here God is promising that in the future, all of Israel, all the people of Israel, the whole nation of Israel, will all together have their hearts changed and turn and receive Christ as their Messiah. Okay? And in the meantime, this is the gospel that we're advancing to all the nations. This is what God will do. This is what God does. So in the Old Covenant, God revealed himself to Israel, gave them the law, and then let Israel be what they willed to be, which was, we don't want you, we don't want you, we don't want you. So all the nations could see. See how sinful you are, nations? See how sinful we are? Look what I've done for Israel, time and time again, loving them, caring for them. We don't want you, we don't want you, we don't want you. Do you see? Oh, Lord, that's me. That's me. Then in the New Covenant, God reveals himself to Israel, gives them the law, takes out their hearts of stone, gives them hearts of flesh. They repent, they put their trust in Jesus, and they're saved. (laughs) Now one obvious question is, what about people in the Old Testament who loved God and responded? Okay? The 7,000 who would not bend their knee to Baal. All right, what about them? What about the, there's a remnant all through Israel's history. The vast majority know, but all through Israel's history, there's a remnant of people who respond to God and love him. And it's because they experienced the, the new covenant in the Old Testament time period. That's what happened. Okay? That's what it was. But so understand this. With the new covenant, God doesn't just reveal himself to people and then wait to see what they'll do. If God did that, he'd still be waiting for everyone because that's our hearts. We want to be like God, just like Adam and Eve. We want to be self-sufficient, independent, in control. I want to call the shots myself. That's the truth of our hearts. But in great love, God just reaches down from heaven because of what Jesus would do on the cross and he takes those hearts out and he gives a heart of flesh. Yes, I see you. I love you. I worship you. Thank you. Now, this probably raises, we get time for a couple questions, and I've got four takeaways I'll try to be brief on, but what are some questions this raises? I tried to anticipate as many as I could, but I always like to open it up because you, you always think of ones I didn't think of. So what are some questions this raises in your mind? What's the significance of the blood in the new and old? In the, in the Old Testament, the blood of the animals pointed ahead to the blood of Christ. Okay? In the book of Hebrews, we'll talk about this next week, the blood of animals doesn't take away sin, but it pictures how sin would be taken away. It pictures how sin would be paid for through what Jesus would do, his shed blood on the cross. Uh, let me try it this way. Romans 9, or is it Romans, Romans 10? I forget, Where, where's, the, where's the, the, the vine? Is it Romans 9 or 10? 11? <laughs> okay. Romans 11. There's a vine which is the, the thick olive tree of God's saving work. And what Paul says in Romans 11 is that we who are wild olive branches through Christ can be grafted in, but unbelievers in Israel are pulled out. And so what's happening now is 
this rich olive tree, which was originally Israel, most of Israel has been pulled out because of their unbelief. Gentiles are being grafted in. But I believe that at the end of history, and, and right now, because of that, we are part of the Old Testament, royal priesthood, people of God, the, the promises that God gave to Israel, except for land and that kind of stuff, all apply to us as God's people. Okay, there's one olive tree. There's not two olive trees, Israel and church. There's one olive tree. We've been grafted in the wild branches. Lots of, of, of Jews do believe in Jesus, but unfortunately the, the majority have been plucked out because they, they, because they didn't want God. Okay, that's why. But the day is going to come when, when all of Israel will be grafted back in, okay, as a nation, and then we'll all be one tree together. So I, does that answer your question? Okay, that's one way to answer it. It's a good question. You know, so there's all these old laws in the Old Testament. Some we follow, some we don't. Why? Okay, it's like cherry picking, or what? How, how does that work out? And it's not an easy question, okay, but, but generally speaking, here's how it works. First of all, there are some that are clearly um, annulled or abrogated by Jesus and the apostles. Like food laws, clear, right? Mark chapter 6, I think it is, and Galatians chapter 2, and um, Acts when the sheet comes down to Peter. So food laws, no application anymore. That's clear, right? Um, I think Sabbath, I think, I think God calls, I think he would tell you to take a day off, trust him to provide for you, but I think like Saturday worship, that's changed, it's clear, right? It's not, Paul says no, no one day is more important than another. If you've got to work on Sunday, if that's what your job, I don't think it's a big issue. Just find a day where you're setting apart to rest and be in the Lord. Um, circumcision isn't an issue anymore, that's clear. That was annulled, right, in the New Testament because baptism is the sign of the new covenant. Um, Lots of Old Testament commands are repeated in the New Testament, so those are clearly to be continue to be followed. And I, I think that, we, that there's commands in the Old Testament that we're to follow even though they're not repeated in the New Testament because they don't have to do with Israel as a nation. They don't have to do with distinguishing Israel culturally. So that, that's kind of how I flow it out. All right? Now, those are the principles, how that works itself out in details. You know, that takes maybe some more thought and work, but those are the general principles. So... Okay, let me give my four takeaways, and then we're gonna we're gonna wrap up here. Let me, as I thought, Lord, what what do you want us to walk away with? Old covenant, new covenant. You bring about our heart change. There's four things, and and let me just urge you with these. First of all, humble yourself before God's astonishing mercy. Here's what I want you to feel: if you are trusting Jesus right now, what I have found so helpful, it's biblical, it's clear, and I found it deeply strengthening of my faith is to realize this didn't come from me. My faith in Jesus didn't come from me. I can't even take credit for that. Because, you know, know, this is what I was. I was this. This was me. I don't want you. And so it's very humbling to think this is what Steve Fuller is. And God in mercy, when I was still this way, in his mercy, because of what Jesus would do, he took this one out and he changed my heart and gave me this one. And so all of my salvation is a gift to me from God. I can't take the credit for any of it. Look at his matchless mercy and to see that more clearly, humble yourself with what the scriptures teach about you. This was a gift from God. Thank you. Father, when I was still your enemy, you had Christ die for me and you saved me and gave me a new heart and you changed me. I was running from God and God just went whoosh.
Change heart, bring back. Okay? So let this humble you, not because the point is that we're all like groveling, but it's true. The more clearly we see our sinfulness, the more ablaze the vision of God's mercy and love and glory will be. That's the first takeaway. Secondly, call upon God to change your heart. If you're not trusting Jesus, if you don't feel spiritual at all, if you have no interest in God, don't be offended. This was, this was true of me too. But you know what the reason is? It's because you don't want God. You Deep down inside, you know he's there, but if you admit that he's there, then you know you're in trouble, so he's not there. Well, let's make a little my own version of who God is, and I can kind of control it, and I can still be self-sufficient. That's the problem. But so here, here's what I want to say. If you're not feeling any interest in God right now, ask God to change your heart. And he will. If you mean it, he will change your heart. He will change your heart. He will take out that heart of stone. That's the problem. This is you. It was me. Okay? Ask him, and he will take out that heart, and he'll give you a new heart. You'll see him. You'll love him. You'll know him. Your heart, for the first time, will be satisfied in knowing him. So ask God to change your heart. He will bring his power upon you and change you. And if you already know the Lord, take advantage of this too. I mean, time and time again, I'm not feeling spiritual. I'm feeling far from God. I'm feeling cold. I don't, I'm not interested in the Bible. God just isn't interesting to me. It's so often that's the case. But see, if you'll stop and just cry out to God and say, God, change me. Help me. And you open up the word and say, make this real to me. Time and time and time again, he changes my heart. And he'll do the same for you. So ask him to. Third takeaway, be bold in sharing the gospel. The means that God uses to change someone's heart from this to this is the gospel. That's why Paul shared the gospel with whoever he met up with in the marketplace. Whoever was there, he would talk to. He didn't wait to kind of see who might be open. He talked to people who weren't open. Because it's through sharing the gospel that God brings his power and does this. So if you know people that are like this, what should you do? Share the gospel with them. Humbly, lovingly, authentically. Because that, it's through the gospel that God does this. Okay, so don't not share because you don't think someone's going to be interested. The only way they're going to be interested is if they hear the gospel and this happens. Okay, and then last, this is what the law is all about. This is what the gospel is all about. Rely on Jesus to love you. I mean, you you are living under a massively powerful, overflowingly loving, caring, benevolent, good, personally attentive to you, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Do you understand that? So we've got this little problem over here. Yes, but look at him. Look at him. I will never leave you or forsake you. So rely on Jesus to love you. Rely on Jesus to forgive you. Oh, just this morning, that scripture that you shared, Cindy, as far as the East is from the West, there's some sins that I've just, from 1972, that I've been just grieving over these last couple weeks. And it just struck me. He has removed those from me as far as the East is from the West. Isn't that awesome? 
Are you burdened by sin? Freely bring your sin, everyone, to the Lord Jesus. Forgive me, Lord, forgive me. Rely on him to forgive you. Rely on him to guide you. What's an area where you know what he says for you to do, but you think, I'm not so sure that's going to work. Painting blood on the doorposts, I'm sure, didn't seem like it would work. But are they glad they did? We don't obey God because all of his commands make sense to us. We obey God because uh, you're God. And I've got a little pea-sized brain, and you've got a God-sized brain. And I'm going to obey you because everyone who's ever followed you has always said, yes, this is the right thing to do. Let him guide you. Let him provide for you. Trust him to provide for you. Every step of Israel in the wilderness, God provided, 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 provided. So here you are, no water, God will provide. Here you are, no food, manna. Here you are, we'd like meat. Meat, God will provide for you. Okay? And then rely on Jesus to satisfy you. Seek him in the scriptures for every, in every heart emptiness, in every heart longing, Every time you're feeling insecure, go to Jesus. I'm feeling insecure. I'm fearful of losing my job. I'm I'm angry about what my husband did. Every heart emptiness, bring it to the Lord Jesus. He will meet you and satisfy you. Rely on Jesus to love you, forgive you, guide you, provide for you, and satisfy you. It's an amazing thing, Jesus, that you said this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And through your death, you purchased faith, repentance, new hearts. That's why I've got a new heart. You died. You suffered to buy that for me.